Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. This is the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one that loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome once again to Good Shepherd New York. My name is Michael, and I'm thrilled to be able to offer my reflection on this Gospel text. Uh, But before I do that, let's just take a moment to open ourselves to the possibility that God could take this story and connect it to our story in a way that produces the fruit of love. So as best as you know how, whether you have lots of faith or doubt, let's just take a quiet moment to open up our hearts to God and to one another. God, we pray that you would give us the grace we need now, that you would give us the wisdom and the insight we need for this moment, for this week, and for our lives. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I was sitting on the couch at the end of a long quarantine day, and it was like most quarantine days. I was tired. Tired from managing six humans in a two-bedroom apartment. I was tired from playing referee to the dozens of conflicts that emerged between my children. I was tired from sending emails and trying to scratch out bits and pieces of a sermon or make a phone call or design an image or manage a project while at the same time monitoring schoolwork with my kids or making sure they were all fed, including myself. I was tired of not having enough time to myself, time to work out, time to think, time to pray. Now, this is not a pity party. I mean, I know that I'm not the only one, and I know that we're all managing this reality together. But as I finally sat on the couch, my wife, Kindy, asked me, question. She said, can you change Gemma's diaper? Now, I was immediately offended. Um, And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am a full participant of Gemma Care in our home. There isn't anything aside from breastfeeding that I do not help with. But in this moment, something didn't compute. Why was I being asked to change a diaper now, especially when Kindy was about to go back to our bedroom and feed her and put her to sleep? And I thought to myself, this is a matter of efficiency, right? I mean, I'm going to walk all the way back to my bedroom, change her, only to walk all the way back to the living room, hand her off to Kindy, so that then she could take in turn 
uh, Gemma right back to the bedroom again. Now, I know the way I'm telling the story makes our apartment sound like it's the palace of Versailles, but in my mind, I thought, why would you ask me to do this if you were about to go back there yourself? Does this stuff sound familiar? I mean, with the emotional intelligence of a toddler, I basically replied to her, why can't you do it? Now, this was a mistake. And we got in a big fight. And like most fights, uh, it was about many other things besides the concrete issue at hand. And the punchline of the argument was basically Kindy saying, essentially, I ask for what I need. And you can trust that if I'm asking you to do something, it's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I'm trying to control you or get one by you. I ask for what I need because that is what healthy people do. Now, if she had a mic, she definitely could have dropped it there. And then she probably would have asked me to pick it up. But later I began reflecting and I started thinking, why was I so offended? I mean, why when she would state a need, like I really need blank right now, would I find myself responding? Don't we all? Who wants to be around a person like that? I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't enjoy it. And I had this realization, both in my own reflection and then later in group therapy, that I have a hard time asking for help sometimes because I often don't allow myself to ask for help. Um, I push through. I carry the load. And even if it's too much, and even if I'm not doing very well because of it. Now, there are perhaps no three words more powerful or more difficult than the words, I need help. Difficult because it requires humility to acknowledge and accept also our limits. Powerful because it opens up the only door that exists for love to enter our lives, the open door of vulnerability. Why is it difficult? Why do we find it so difficult to ask for and to receive the help that we need? Now, our story today is found in John's gospel. And in this story, uh, John depicts like this nexus of power that holds us back from both receiving the help we need as well as asking for it. Some call it the unholy trinity. And John depicts it as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, acknowledge that these three words, I acknowledge these three words uh, as a sort of a sufficient account for what's wrong with the world can sound kind of primitive, and it can even sound superstitious, even for those of us who seek to follow Jesus today. And some of that is because we haven't often done the hard work to understand how these terms actually functioned in their original setting. And instead, we just copy and paste these words into our moment, and we can over-spiritualize and expect these words to act like magic just because we're using them. But John, uh, for John, the world simply means this dominant system of seeing and managing life. It has to do with our corporate imagination. It shows up in broader cultural trends and tastes and policies. And it's not simply abstract. It's the concrete economy. It's our justice system. It's international policy. Right? The term the world is shorthand for all the ways we try to organize our lives, basically unconvinced that the source and the purpose of our life is love. The world operates on an assumption of scarcity, that there's not enough, 
that there's a basic competition to get what we really need, and that this game is a zero-sum game. And so it's a system that promotes power as domination and purpose as survival. And Jesus says here that we need help desperately, and that help is on the way, but that there is a way of seeing and managing life that's sort of in the air, and it's reflected in and it's influenced by our systems, and it causes us to resist this help. So we have the world, a world that holds us back, but we also have what John calls the flesh. And this isn't some retrograde, like body-negative vocabulary that points us to a spirituality where we try to escape the body or escape the material. No, this is a rather sophisticated way to talk about what we moderns would call the ego. The flesh is our strategy to get what we think we need most in this world. Our senses of need, of course, vary from person to person. But what our ego strategies have in common is that they, like the world, refuse to take love for granted. In every case, our ego strategy operates on this basic assumption that love isn't enough, that love can't be counted on to protect me from what I fear, and it can't be counted on to secure what I need. And in the end, what John calls the flesh always sees love as conditional to the core. Now, we learn quickly what condition needs to be met to get what we need, whether it's being good or being helpful or being admirable or being special or being intelligent or being safe and secure or maybe being indulged and satisfied or perhaps being powerful or even being serene and peaceful. And in turn, we avoid things. We avoid fault or blame. We avoid our own needs or maybe we avoid failure or the ordinary or relying on others or relying on ourselves or we avoid pain or weakness or conflict. There's a sort of built-in reward and punishment system in our ego strategies, or what the Bible calls the flesh. Each one of us sees the world in a way that we play this game right. If we play this game right, we can get what we want, and we can avoid what we fear. And so we have this world system holding us back from our help. We have the strategies of the flesh holding us back. And finally, we have the devil. But I challenge you in this moment. I would challenge you uh, to move away from thinking or imagining the devil or the Satan as some cosmic boogeyman that looms large. Instead, consider the title, the Satan, in the first place. It literally means the adversary, right? It's the one who is against. And the Bible says satanic, or, or calls satanic, all the messages we take to heart that make us feel small, that make us feel stained or inadequate, that make us feel unsafe, they're threatening messages. And they can show up, uh, to be sure, in advertisements. They can show up on the tongue of a friend or an enemy or a boss or a lover. It can rear its head in gossip or it can show up again and again in the mental loops that sort of spin constantly in our minds. These messages basically boil down to one idea. You are not worthy of love. Now, in Jesus, we see him resisting the world, resisting the flesh, resisting the devil. And he has a profound experience of God's love and God's pleasure that anchors his life from his baptism on. And he has this sense that the truest and deepest thing about him, about his purpose, is that he is loved. He constantly has this basic orientation put to the test. 
And it's here at this last dinner with his friends where he's cluing them in on how we embrace this love, embrace this new orientation, and resist this unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. So Jesus is painting a picture of the Spirit of our Creator, the Spirit of God, as a constant source of help. And what does the Spirit help us do? The Spirit helps us cultivate what the world does not see and what the world cannot know. The Spirit helps us cultivate presence when all the world can see is absence. The Spirit helps us cultivate courage when all the world can see is a cause for fear. The Spirit helps us cultivate forgiveness when all the world knows is retaliation and revenge. And the Spirit helps us cultivate truth when all the world knows is how to hear what's convenient and how to cover its tracks. The Spirit helps us. It helps us cultivate poise and security in the face of judgment when all the world knows is fragility and offense and expulsion. The Spirit helps us cultivate peace when all the world sees is intractable conflict. And ultimately, the Spirit helps us cultivate love when all the world knows is this system of reward and punishment. And Jesus is basically saying here at this last dinner that love unlocks everything. Accepting this spirit, accepting this help is rooted in a seeing and a knowing in verse 17. And this is where we can begin to see the power and the potential of this Christian idea of God as Trinity. Jesus commands his disciples to love here at his last supper, but he also knows that they will need help. He knows that we will need help. And so what does he do? He helps them understand that love gives birth to love. And love is about connection, and it's about presence, and it's about gift, and it's about sacrifice. And this is who God is, and it's who God was, and it's who God always will be. Jesus tells them in verse 20 that everything hinges on what he calls a realization, basically an aha moment, where our eyes have to be opened to accept what the world cannot accept. That love is at the center of the universe. That love is what created us. And that love is what holds everything together. That God is love and that God is with and in all of us. Now, this is an act of imagination, which isn't to say it's imaginary. See, often our imagination is determined by illusion. And Jesus says, we need the spirit of truth to light up our imagination, to get it firing on all cylinders, the cylinders of love, so that we can see how things really are. And how are things really? Well, Jesus says it this way, quote, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And earlier he said the same thing of the Spirit, that the Spirit is with you and will be in you. So Jesus' answer for the unholy trinity holding us back from what we need is to open up to the holy trinity of love, who is all around us and who is in us. Now consider that word in. This is a preposition of intimacy. It's a spatial metaphor that tells a story of presence. It tells a story of closeness. 
And Jesus is saying, we need this realization that God is beautiful, a beautiful dance of love, who knows intimacy and knows presence and knows giving and receiving always and forever. And that that dance is happening all around us and inside of us. And if we will dare to have the eyes that the world doesn't have, and if we'll dare to accept the world or what the world cannot accept, then we too can be helped. We too can experience and know this eternal and undying love. And it's that love which unlocks everything. This love, it unlocks the cage of this reward and punishment system. Uh, It doesn't operate by the same rules. And in our world, we keep track of social debits and credits, even if subconsciously and intuitively. We always try to work the system to get what we need. But love unlocks us from that cage. It helps us engage in acts of defiance that sort of perplex the world and its calculations. It moves us into a state of whimsy, and we begin to dance uh, to a, a song and to music that few can hear. Now, what invitation do you sense this morning? Perhaps you need to reflect on how this unholy trinity of the world and the flesh and the devil is at work in your life right now keeping you from accepting and experiencing the help that you really need? What are those harmful messages that stick with you, that make you feel small? What are those systems that, that, that put pressure on you to conform to their way? What, what are the uh, influences in your life of ego that, that drive you? We need God's love always, and we need constantly to, to root ourselves. Even as the old hymn says, we need you every hour. And we need to practice opening up to this love. We need to practice seeing our lives from the place of this love so that we can in turn offer this love to the world. May God fill us with this spirit, this helper, this advocate who stands in the gap between us and our adversary, all the forces at work against us. And may God come to our aid, especially in quarantine, to be the people of love, that we would participate in the dance of love, and that we ourselves would offer that love in turn. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.